0: This is the McKinsey Podcast, where we help you make sense out of our world's toughest business challenges.
1: Welcome to the show. I'm Lucia Rahili. And I'm Roberta Fassaro.
2: Most companies have no idea how much space they need in two years, let alone 10 years. Why do they need to sign a lease for 10 years? And that's really just about the structure of how the real estate industry works and how valuations are done. And that has to change.
3: That's McKinsey Senior Partner Aditya Songvi. He and Senior Partner Jonathan Wetzel join me to talk about those giant office buildings with so few tenants. Today, we're digging into the state of corporate real estate post-pandemic.
1: And after that, we'll hear from Jennifer Shuba, author of 8 Billion and Counting. She's an expert in demographics, and she says that it's about time that we have more productive conversations about population reform from our Author Talk series.
3: Aditya, Jonathan, welcome to the podcast.
2: Glad to be here. Delighted.
3: So let's start with some context. The COVID 19 pandemic upended lives in a myriad of ways, and perhaps one of the most lasting has been hybrid work. How has the persistence of hybrid affected office attendance overall three and a half years on?
2: Well, what's clear to us is that hybrid is here to stay. And, you know, there's three reasons that give us that confidence. You know, one is the attendance rate that we've seen has really stabilized and it's stabilized for over a year now. You know, second, actual attendance aligns quite closely with what workers want and also what workers expect their employers to demand. And third, there's actually a substantial number of knowledge workers that would rather resign or accept a pay cut rather than come in more often. And many of those folks are the executives who are in charge of making those decisions.
3: So practically speaking, what does protracted working from home mean for downtown districts or other areas with a high density of office buildings. Has hybrid had ripple effects on those neighborhoods?
0: Yeah, it definitely has. I mean, I think if we look at uh, neighborhoods, particularly which were very office dominated, the first main impact is simply, of course, there are fewer people in those offices. Therefore, there are fewer people on those streets. Uh, And with that, there are fewer people in shops or uh, just anywhere uh, in the neighborhood, which combined with the uh, rise of online commerce is creating a big challenge for those downtown retail spaces and pu- public spaces more generally in those office-intensive areas. That's one. The other obvious impact is on residential usage. As uh, people are closer to home, those homes are becoming more in demand, actually. We've seen that. And then around those homes, that there's a minor resurgence of uh, of retail there. So we see the shopping and commerce patterns shifting um, as the people shift.
3: Mm-hmm. What does the data say on the kind of flight to the suburbs that was so visible during the early stages of the pandemic? Has that persisted as well?
2: Yeah, I mean, it, it was fascinating that during the pandemic, there was, you know, an out migration from urban cores. And in the nine cities that we studied, you know, some of them lost up to 7% of their people, which is really significant. and those people have not come back, yet the rate of outmigration in those urban cores has been lower but continued to be negative. And this has meant that, you know, people are moving more to the suburbs than the urban core. So basically people left during the pandemic, they're not coming back. And the urban cores are still continuing to see relative outmigration versus the suburbs around them.
3: Is this a global phenomenon and which cities have been hardest hit by protracted hybrid work?
0: Well, clearly the hardest hit city is San Francisco of the ones that we studied. Uh, and you can say, well, why? And it's, you know, first of all, a very relatively densely built urban core. Secondly, it's office oriented to a much greater degree than many other urban cores. Thirdly, the access to public transport relative to some cities, not as strong so essentially, it did lead to people saying, "Well, I'm going to stay home."
2: And San Francisco actually had a double whammy because San Francisco has, in terms of business mix, a higher share of technology jobs and talent that had the power to sort of assert what they would accept. And on urban structure, San Francisco's office dense with thirty percent of the space dedicated to office, and home prices are five times the national average, and they have a very high share of inbound commuters relative to other cities. So on both of those impacts, They were worse off, and that's why you saw the drop-off that San Francisco did see.
0: On the other hand, you have places like Tokyo, where you have pretty much the opposite um, of all of that, and so relatively less impacts because of the great public transport, because of the mixed use, and that has led to more moderate impacts.
3: Say a little bit more about the constellation of factors that mean that one city might be more affected than another by these hybrid trends?
2: Yeah, and you know, in our research, we simplified it down to two things. One is business mix. And that's what is the industry mix of the city? What share of workers in the city are employed at large firms? And those at large firms tend to come into the office a little bit lower than those at smaller firms. And what's the cultural acceptance of remote work? And then the second one was around urban structure. One of the most important ones in that is how often are the people who come to work actually commuting into the city versus living in the city itself? And is the urban center office dense or is there a lot of green space and residential? And then also is the housing expensive? So those two factors, the business mix and the urban structure, are really what seem to drive the differences.
3: You modeled a range of future scenarios as part of this research. What do we expect demand for office space to look like in the years to come?
2: We found that office demand in 2030 could be 13% lower in the median city that we studied in sort of a moderate scenario. And what's fascinating is that really, when you think about it from a value basis, it means that values could be 26% lower in our moderate scenario and up to 42% lower in our severe scenario. And in just these nine cities, that's $800 billion of potential value of office real estate that goes away.
3: It's remarkable. Is there a quality variable too in this? In other words, if demand for office space is falling, does quality become a higher priority?
2: Yeah. In many ways, quality becomes everything. I mean, basically for many people, the offices that they experienced pre-pandemic weren't more compelling or interesting than working from home. And especially once childcare was restored, kids could go back to school, people could take care of the elderly. There was flexibility that remained, even though some of the restrictions of the pandemic went away. And with that, everybody asked themselves in the morning, is the office experience I'm going to have today worth the commute that I need to take? And in large, you know, portions of our knowledge, worker, population, the answer to that has been no, the commute is not worth it. And that's why people are not coming. So quality becomes everything. But you know, the definition of quality is really much more focused now on the employee, not the employer. And that is a significant change in office real estate, because it's about, can I get people to want to come into the office and to spend time in the office? And that's really what employers care about as well.
0: And that's really what drives quality hmm. This this shift from supply centric to demand centric is kind of going to be the reshaping of of the environment. Every meeting that you used to have it would be either a phone meeting or it would be in person. There would be no video or zoom option. Now, every meeting I have has a zoom option. So it just creates choice for everybody. And I think that's going to be reflected And everything from locations and choices of locations to the design, of course, of the buildings themselves and the spaces that we use, uh, it opens up a lot more flexibility. And with that, it's sort of an imperative to use that flexibility on the part of the supplier, the employer or the developer.
3: Mm -hmm. And if the demand for office space remains lower than historic norms in future, how does that affect the retail ecosystem? For example, I mean, retail, as you said, was arguably faltering pre pandemic. How will retail fare in the years to come, according to your scenarios?
0: The answer, I think, is that retail becomes, first of all, a lot more experiential. And so you are doing the things in in person that you really want to do in person, uh, which includes community experiences as well as mixed use. So a lot of healthcare, a lot of education you go look at shopping malls these days, I mean, good 20, 25% of it is in those formats because those are things you really want to do in person. Uh, whereas uh, commodity buys are going to go online. And then you're going to see a lot of interesting developments, uh, or particularly around areas which have both residential and retail around thinking about retail as delivery points. Uh, so warehouses essentially <laughs> are using using underground space. And, and that's definitely also becoming a bit of a trend. In these otherwise underutilized retail spaces.
2: And I I would add that retail is a really interesting analogy for what might happen in office. So if we go back 10, 15 years before that, shopping happened largely in person. You had to go to a store to get what you wanted. And what e commerce did is it created an option to basically get that from home. And what you then saw was a huge separation in quality between. The shopping mall centers that attracted people, where families wanted to go on the weekend to spend time with one another, versus the other ones that just allowed people to buy. And what happened is that people stopped going to the places they didn't need to go to anymore. They bought online, and they continued to go to the high-quality places that were actually a great experience. And that's exactly what's happening in office now. Now in office, I can do the low-quality version of my work from home. So I want to go to the places that I actually want to be in, and that's why we think the quality office will continue to do really well, and the low quality office will do poorly, just like the low quality shopping malls did poorly over the last ten years.
4: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm.
3: And of course, you know, selfishly, I'm interested in whether the research yielded any hot takes on what might happen in the residential market in these urban cores. As Jonathan knows, I live in New York City, where the cost of real estate is, you know, one of three topics on regular rotation at every dinner table. What did this scenario show about residential markets?
0: Well, the good news and the bad news, because uh, it's both, mm-hmm. <laughs> is that you're, you're fine. In the sense, <laughs> if you're a property owner, you're fine. <laughs> so uh, uh, if you're a renter, mm, not so much. The demand for residents will increase in every city, perhaps, except for maybe of the few of the hard- hardest hit. It's based somewhat on population growth, of uh, noting that we are, for a lot of these megacities or, or more advanced economies, just so far behind in terms of meeting the demand for residential space, y- including in the urban core, that we're not going to catch up even with this. But we do see an ongoing sort of longer term trend towards rising residential prices. There are changes in the mix, larger homes, for example, in the suburb areas, sort of the prices for two to four bedroom homes rising a lot more quickly than prices for one bedroom homes. I think that, you know, that reflects that move outwards to say, okay, I'm going to spend more time at home. I want a bigger home. And that's true. But at the same time, as I said, we don't see this as having a a dramatic impact on the values of residential wherever we're talking about. Um, Largely, again, because of the broader picture around residential that we simply are you know, way behind on building for, for places for people to live. Mm-hmm. And adding on to what uh, Jonathan said,
2: there's there's a huge dispersion across different cities as well. You know, based in in large part due to urban structure. Um, so there are a lot of urban cores that are these downtowns that basically only or largely have office buildings, and the value proposition of those downtowns is very challenged right now. But places that have a great combination of retail, experiences, restaurants, residential living, and office are actually seeing demand potentially go up uh, because people want to be there.
3: Right. I mean, it's interesting. I live in a primarily residential neighborhood. And at the beginning of the pandemic, we were all terrified that our favorite mom and pop stores would go under. But in fact, many of them seemed not just to survive, but in some cases actually to thrive in part because so many of us were working from home rather than taking the train into business districts, and therefore we were patronizing these neighborhood shops more frequently. Is that kind of what you mean?
0: Yeah, absolutely. The residential mixed-use neighborhood is is alive and thriving, and of course taking back the sidewalks was a response there, and cities uh, supported that. Uh, where you've had innovations during the course of the pandemic that that proved successful, people have, by and large, kept them. That, I think, is a tribute to what people want, Um, this notion of a walkable, livable environment. Now, not every place is like that. And so I would caution us to say, like, you know, if you were living in South L.A., this was not a good thing for you (laughs) because, you know, you don't have those amenities in your neighborhood. Uh, You have a food desert, on the other hand. So those places, very, very hard hit. So if anything, the pandemic has accentuated the differences at a neighborhood level, and the work from home is going to do the same. We'll have some people clustered in very nice neighborhoods, and then they will periodically commute into their offices once in a while to see how things are going, and the service personnel will cluster around the estates in these far-off communities. But I think that's a caricature of what, what this looks like, but, but it does, again, show what people want, that they do want this mixed-use livable environment. Look, I,
2: I think the neighborhoods that are performing better are the ones that are pedestrian friendly, that have great green spaces, and have a mix of office retail, you know, experiences, uh, and it's sort of an ecosystem of everything that one might want in their life, all sort of in one place.
0: And I would just add on to that, uh the the transit connection is is an important aspect of where you will see the possibility for demand. If you have great transit connections, it does create great flexibility.
3: And so what is next? I mean, it sounds like there's some risk that these mega cities or superstar cities may lose a little bit of their luster, shine a little less brightly. Is that correct in certain neighborhoods? Is that a real risk?
0: Yes, definitely. Let's let's not beat around the bush. I think that there is clearly going to be a reconsideration of the development model and from the transaction standpoint, just a real slowdown. But we've seen a pause, particularly in commercial real estate activity, as people try to rethink what actually is going to be the market rate environment going forward and how should they reimagine the purpose of these buildings. Uh, And so you have it at the market level. I think you definitely have it at the district or neighborhood level. Definitely have it at the building level. And then finally, within the building, I think that, you know, there are some spaces that are simply not fit for purpose in an environment where you have to appeal to the employee. Yeah. And just to add on
2: the fit for purpose part, you know, if office wants to thrive, I think there's a world where it absolutely can it just has to be completely reimagined. I mean, the, the office that we have is really designed around a place that I have to be. Many of them are cube farms that are just not enjoyable. And if we were to redesign the product and do something that is actually tailor-made for the types of experiences that get people in, and also better made for you know, employers. You know, I mean, for example, most office leases, and it depends on each country, You know, can be between five and 10 years. Most companies have no idea how much space they need in two years, let alone 10 years. Why do they need to sign a lease for 10 years? And that's really just about the structure of how the real estate industry works and how valuations are done. And that has to change.
0: Yeah. Just to give one example. uh, So I'm looking at a bunch of office buildings and uh, these things are all recently built three or four years now. It's just really questionable what you do with them because of the downgrading of office demand. And then we say, okay, what can you convert them to residential as, you know, one of the usual use cases. And then you look at the thing and it's got, you know, a, a huge floor plate. And so if you did residential in this thing, everything inside of the first, you know, three meters is going to be darkness. <laughs> so uh, it's just very difficult and expensive to convert these big blocks. And so you'd start thinking about what else could you do with that interior space, if not a cube farm. Uh, and you come up with some different approaches. So, I mean, first of all, gyms, but then can you have a 28-story interior gym? (laughs) It's like That's quite a lot of gym space. Uh, And and then maybe there's healthcare uh, because you want things where you really literally don't want people to look in. (laughs) So you want things that are private to be in those interior spaces. So maybe education, maybe um, musical experiences. So lots of interesting innovations to be thought of for these buildings, which are built for 50 years, uh, to be clear. (laughs) So, uh, and that's where I think those long-term leases came from, uh, but now have to be repurposed for a a different customer set and different use.
2: I mean, I think even in the office buildings themselves, there also has to be reimagination done on the product that is being given to the tenant. So imagine that I went to go buy a car and basically what they sold me was a shell of the car, but the car didn't drive. That's basically what office space is today. People will say, here's a canvas of space that you can use however you want. But the problem is that most companies and organizations don't know how to use the space in a hybrid work environment. And so one of the really interesting changes that need to happen is that real estate companies need to become experts and provide solutions for the tenants where they give them a car that works really well and that they know from other people driving that car that they want that car. And that's a radical shift in the industry that if it does happen, I think could mean that a lot of the office space we do have could be used again as office space.
3: Mm -hmm. Anything in thinking through what should happen at that floor level in order to make a really hospitable, attractive office space for employees?
2: I, I think the office product needs to have hospitality. I think there needs to be people on the floors that are well-trained in providing delightful food and beverage experiences and helping people find things and getting copies and making it more joyful and more convenient for the people that come in. And then finally, and I think what's probably most disruptive is we have to take the, the office and make it not just art, but actually art and science. There have been so many designs that have happened over time and ways that people run their office space. And no one really has any idea if that's leading to better outcomes for employees or for employers. And, you know, one of the ways that we're working with clients a lot these days is to actually measure it and to say, here is the productivity, the engagement of all the employees and here are their work patterns. And then you can start to say things like the people who come in, in this type of role with this type of frequency actually are getting better engagement and better productivity than people who are not. And it's far better to actually make it a science and then to continue to get better and better productivity and employee experience from the space over time.
0: Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just the needs that people have and the knowledge of does this space meet your need or not is something that has been not part of most business cases for developing a building. And I I speak from more the the retail and the hospitality angle itself. I mean, I don't think anybody in most hospitality industry actually knows you know, where your customer is coming from for one thing, uh, and what is their uh, relative Im- need for community, uh, for sustainability, uh, for what kinds of things boost their productivity. Uh, so we're sort of turning on the lights and sort of understanding what is it that that influences people not on the factory floor. But in a communal work environment, when do they need privacy? When do they need sharing? What kinds of information do they exchange? What kinds do they not want to exchange? Um, these are things that we are now basically live testing in buildings. And I think that, that uh, providers, operators that, that use those data can, first of all, be much more efficient. Uh, and so they will have a cost advantage because uh, they will not be providing the things that nobody cares about.
3: Jonathan, you mentioned the challenge of converting some of these buildings. Can you give an example of successful mixed-use development that might be in play?
0: You know, in L.A., we've seen quite a lot of redevelopment. In areas that were historically less vibrant, uh, Koreatown comes to mind. You know, large mixed-use developments like The Grove, uh, even Marina del Rey, uh, I think that, you know, pieces of the city have shown this kind of revitalization. Um, what the challenge is, is, in some sense, to do it at scale. Um, that's always a challenge in a place like, like Los Angeles, which is quite uh, spread out and fragmented. Uh, but it is about sort of taking a block by block level of view and then coming up with a model that allows us to efficiently and effectively transform a whole area, <clears throat> which uh, requires finance, of course, uh, but even more importantly, requires permitting and zoning. And of course, it requires delivery. And you know, where there has been hollowing out, most notably, for example, Detroit, we've seen things happen faster, uh, where things have been sort of okay, but not, not great. It's had tend to take longer time. This series of events, you know, one hopes is a moment of renewal. Uh, so people see that this is a possible and be needed.
3: Mhm. Aditya, what about the importance of affordable housing for folks in cities? We've talked about sort of neighborhood by neighborhood, some neighborhoods will remain expensive, there will be neighborhoods that are outside that may be less expensive. What role does affordable housing play in this discussion?
2: Well, a shortage of affordable housing has long been one of the biggest challenges that many cities have faced and post-pandemic policymakers can think very differently because one of the issues they had is that there was often a lack of space that they could really think about using for affordable housing. Or sometimes if they did have the space, it would be in a neighborhood and then you wouldn't really have uh, you know, mixed income neighborhoods in the way that we would want. But now there's space that's available in many parts of the urban core. And thinking about how to do the zoning correctly and create the incentives correctly to unlock affordable housing uh, would, would benefit so many uh, across the globe. But Jonathan, you're one of the world's foremost thinkers on affordable housing. What would you add to that?
0: I'll try not to uh, to take over the rest of the podcast, <laughs> but I uh, think that this is the, the crisis of our times. Uh, for the vast majority of people in a city, the rent is the single biggest piece of their household expenditure, uh, and that's because that rent is pretty high. And that, as Aditya, you're saying, it's because we've had a slowdown in the supply additions relative to the demand for this space. And this is based on economics 101. So now office conversions, the numbers that we saw when we looked at it, it, just it doesn't move the needle. Uh, Just converting the office to uh, affordable housing is probably not going to make much of a difference. But neighborhood reinvention, neighborhood reimagination, and along with this, the idea that work can move. Uh, and work can move to your home uh, allows us to think, well, why isn't Compton an office center? You know, why aren't there employers in Pacoima? Uh, you know, what, what's holding them back? That's the opportunity. The work from home doesn't by itself create the opportunity, but it does create the moment where you can reconsider the neighborhood. And by reconsidering the neighborhood, we can, I think, bring in a lot more affordability to it. Uh, which would be unquestionably a huge source of dynamism uh, for our economies and uh, needless to say, for our societies. Aditya,
3: Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us today.
0: Our pleasure. Thank you.
1: Neighborhoods and the people who live in them are top of mind for Jennifer Shuba, author of Eight Billion and Counting, How Sex, Death, and Migration Shape Our World. She wants to help people talk about migration rationally, not emotionally. This is an excerpt from our author talk series.
4: I'm Jennifer Shuba, and my book, 8 Billion and Counting, How Sex, Death, and Migration Shape Our World, is an overview of global demographic trends. A lot of what's written about population is alarmist in tone, and it really politicizes population issues, which I think is a real problem because it can prevent us from meaningful reform on really important issues. One example of that would be migration. If we use the U.S., for example, that fear around migration has really infected politics to the point where it's impossible for Congress to do any reforms to migration that are really needed. Population trends sounds like this really large scale thing, but at the end of the day, it's about individual people just aggregated. So, what I'm, I try to do in the book is take that alarmism out and really give a well informed social science view on population trends to hopefully help us move past that. A lot of people will be surprised to learn how rare migration is these days. The pop quiz that I give all the time when I'm speaking to different audiences is well, what proportion of the world's population do you think lives outside the country in which they were born? And answers always overestimate it. Even among expert audiences, they'll say 50% or 20%. But the right answer is just 2 to 4% for the last 50 or 60 years. So migrating is rare. Most people stay where they're born. Recognizing that is really important for several reasons. The message out there that waves of migrants are coming in the future can actually lead to inaction in the present because, oh, well, if this is a certainty and there'll be lots of migrants coming, we don't have to do a lot. Here's an example of that. Business leaders who might be hoping to rely on immigrants to fill their workforce in countries whose populations are aging and their workforces are shrinking, those business leaders might be really surprised and disappointed to see that those waves of migrants aren't coming. That means that they need to take some action now in order to shape the workforce that they want in the future. That's an overestimation of migration, which I think can be really dangerous. So we know that there are all kinds of forces, climate change would be an example of this, that push people out of rural areas in countries that are not yet highly urbanized. But in the past, urbanization often took place because people were pulled into urban areas because of jobs. And that's two very different things because when hundreds of thousands or even millions of young men in particular are pushed out of rural areas and into urban areas and they don't find jobs, a lot of times what that means is instability. One of the coolest things about demography is that any snapshot of a population today tells us a little bit about the future. Trends do change, of course, and I describe a lot of the ways that they change in the book, but they generally follow predictable patterns, and so they can be really useful for long-term business planning. But I think that also underscores the idea that we really have to invest today to shape the future that we want tomorrow, much for listening to the McKinsey podcast.
3: I'm Lucia Rahili
1: and I'm Roberta Fasaro.
3: Find us on mckinsey.com. We'll have a transcript of this episode up shortly
1: and download the McKinsey Insights app where you can find this podcast and other helpful content updated daily.
3: If you enjoyed the show, we'd love for you to leave a rating and a review.
1: We'll see you in 2 weeks.